It's one. And the Old Testament, and as Eric and I endeavor in our missions ministry to reach the Jew first and also the Gentile, I love for them to come in my home and see their Hebrew Bible, their Old Testament on the bottom and sitting on top of it a New Testament. Because I can explain to them that the Hebrew Bible, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms is the foundation of God's Word, His truth. The New Testament, written down by Jewish eyewitnesses who beheld the Messiah, is the building erected thereupon. It is the fruition, the establishment, the fulfillment. It is all God's Word. And so what we see in the New Testament, doctrinally speaking, is nothing new. It is the declaration openly to the church of what had already been spoken by the prophets. And Paul says that the rapture of God's church is a mystery. And therefore, if it's a mystery, it must be veiled in the Old Testament. And we've talked about that. We looked at types of God rapturing His people out of, of judgment before it happened. We looked at Genesis chapter 5 and what God did with Enoch. Enoch walked with God... And he was not because God took him. That word take in the Hebrew is the same word in the Hebrew translation of the New Testament that Jesus used when he said, let not your heart be troubled to his disciples. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And when I am come again, I will receive. The same verb that God was used to describe God taking Enoch. To take you to myself. The wedding, as the bridegroom would do for his bride in the Hebrew or the Jewish wedding. We talked about Genesis 19, God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And how the angels that had, came to, that had come to destroy the city could do nothing until Lot and his family were gone. In fact, they were hastened, get your stuff and get out of here because I can't do anything until you're gone. God delivered just Lot, who was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. And we looked at Jeremiah 38 and 39, the tale of a, an Ethiopian eunuch, a, Jew, a, a, a Gentile, in the midst of God's coming judgment on the nation of Israel and how God delivered him. Ebed-Melech, just an eunuch in the king's court that interposed on behalf of Jeremiah, who'd been cast into the pit. And God told him, you will, don't worry about the army besieging this city. You will be delivered because your trust was in me. So we saw a type of a Gentile delivered out of judgment and Jeremiah, the Jewish prophet, preserved through it. Just like the testimony of Israel in the church. We looked at Psalm 27, David in time of judgment, was convinced that God would take him or take the righteous and hide him in his pavilion in a time of trouble. The psalmist is a type of the church that God will take and hide in his pavilion. And then we started looking at some direct teaching, not just types. The Old Testament was written for two purposes to us, the Gentile church, to warn us, it shows us how God deals with nature, nations and peoples, particularly those that once knew Him but have turned their back on Him, and to comfort us through God's history of deliverance so that we can comfort others. And so they're examples to us. So everything we see is a type. 
of how God, his, what's his protocol throughout the ages? Because God is consistent. He doesn't change like the politicians. He consistently deals with things in righteousness. What is right and wrong is what is right and wrong to God. It'd be nice if the church in America could get back to doing what's right simply because it is right, not because of what might happen. You know, if we'd have done that in the voting booths long ago, there probably would be a whole big, you know, the Republican Party would have learned this lesson a long time ago. You know, maybe when we go to the voting booth, we should have been saying, you know what, God, I'm going to vote for righteousness regardless if righteousness has a chance of winning an election or not. But we are pragmatists. And pragmatism is an old, old trick of the devil that goes all the way back to the father of all man-made religion. The father of all man-made religion wasn't Adam. It wasn't the serpent. The serpent was the instigator, but it was Cain. Cain said, I'm going to worship God my way. God requires a blood sacrifice. I'm going to do it my way because that's what works for me. And so we have all man-made religion. The way of Cain, Jude describes it. But, man, I kind of got off on a little tangent there. We see direct teaching in the Old Testament. Psalm 50, you know, which prophesies God's coming judgment on Israel in the time of tribulation. But before... That judgment is poured out. God says He will gather to Himself the righteous who have made a covenant with Him by sacrifice. It's the church, Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ that have made a covenant with God by the sacrifice of Messiah. And God's going to gather them before that judgment is poured out on Israel. The word gather in Hebrew, ancient word, ancient words. Ancient books written from of old is the same word in the Hebrew New Testament that Jesus uses in Matthew 24 and Luke, 20, or Luke 17 when he says, Two will be in the field, one will be taken. Asa, gathered. Exactly what the psalmist writes, the other left behind. We talked about Song of Solomon, the second chapter, in that great poem that is a type. Solomon's relationship with his Shunammite bride is a type or a picture of Christ's relationship with the bride, his church. Chapter 2 describes the fetching of the bride, the coming to fetch her out and take her away. And it's a time when the fig tree begins to bloom. The image of the fig tree, the green leaves shooting forth, and the green figs coming on the branch. Jesus Christ was referring to this when he highlighted the fig tree with his disciples. Jesus Christ didn't pull out analogies out of thin air when he preached. He was constantly alluding to the scriptures time and time again. And he was alluding back to that very image given in that book. When the fig tree begins to blossom and the green leaf shoots forth, it's time for the bridegroom to come fetch his bride. Therefore, we're to be at ready. Because we don't know what hour our Lord will come. Two will be in the field. Two, two will be at the mill. Two will be in the bed. One taken. One fetched. The other left behind. 
The bridegroom tells his bride in Song of Solomon 2, come away, the winter is past. Let's go. Get your stuff. Let's go. Then we looked at Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26 is the, the prophet sees the same thing that Paul sees or describes in 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. We're told that God is coming out of His place to punish the, wor- the inhabitants of the world. That's what this time of tribulation exists to do. To punish the wicked and to wake up the nation of Israel. It's called the tribulation. It's called Daniel 70 weeks. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. At that time when God comes out of His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth, the righteous are told, come away, come, hide yourself in a secret place until the indignation be passed. That verb there in Hebrew, to hide, come, come away, is the same verb the bridegroom says to his bride in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, come away. So we see these direct references in the Old Testament to the mystery of what Paul reveals in 1 Thessalonians 4, the blessed hope of the believer, Christ coming for his bride to deliver her from God's wrath because in Christ we have not been appointed to wrath. In Christ we have been delivered from the wrath to come. In the message to the church at Philadelphia, in, the begin- in chapter 3 of Revelation, Jesus tells the church, because you have kept the word of my patience in trying times, I will keep you from the hour of temptation that is coming to test and try all the earth. What a blessed promise for those who keep his word. So I had one more passage I want to look at in the Old Testament that I believe is showing us the mystery of the rapture and what nation it will profoundly affect more than any other nation. And I find it very interesting. I'm not dogmatic in my interpretation of prophecy, but I do know that prophecy shows that when God fulfills it, whether we understand it on this side or not, we will see it fulfilled exactly as it was written. And so there are some interesting things to think about. I think we should teach and preach prophecy. The spirit of prophecy, the Bible says in Revelation, is the testimony of Jesus. His testimony is that spirit. He fulfilled it. That's how we know he was the Messiah. He will fulfill it when he comes back. Everything he did at his first coming was literal to the minutest of details. So it will be with his second. Proverbs chapter 11 is what we were kind of looking at in conjunction with the unsung heroes of the birth narrative of Christ going back to right after Thanksgiving. Now, although none of those messages have been posted online. I'm going to try to start working on that. But we looked at verses 7 through 11 each week. We looked at a different principle there. Today, I just want to look briefly at verse 6. The righteousness of the upright shall deliver them. As followers of Messiah, what is our righteousness? Our righteousness is the Messiah. See, Israel's problem is they went about establishing their own righteousness and not the righteousness that David understood to be the Messiah. 
Our righteousness is the Messiah. And that righteousness, the Messiah, will deliver those who believe upon him. But transgressors, the fearful, the unbelieving, the liars, the wicked, shall be taken in their own naughtiness. The righteous, whose righteousness is the Messiah, will be delivered, just like Ebed Melech, the, 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 the Gentile eunuch, who was delivered when Babylon besieged Jerusalem. He was fetched, he was rescued. The righteous will be fetched and rescued. Transgressors, however, will be taken in their own craftiness, in their own naughtiness. The wicked people at the top of our government that are plotting and scheming, that have stolen an election from us, that care not about the people they are supposed to represent. And I'm not talking about one party. I'm talking about both parties. For a long time I've said this, and you can go back to 2013 when I started preaching through Revelation. The Communist Party in this country has got two names, Democrat and Republican. I've said it for a decade, and it's true. But rest assured, those who plot against God's people and against righteousness will be taken in their own craftiness. History bears record to this. History bears record. The Nazis were taken in their own naughtiness. King Herod was taken. Many of you don't know what happened to King Herod. There are several Herods in the New Testament. Herod the Great was a wicked king, selfish, prideful, narcissist to the core, scheming, conniving. He'd kill his own family members. He had some of his own sons and one of his wives murdered because he was so paranoid they were plotting against him. Herod was used to re-fortify the temple, to remodel it. It had been a project that was over 40 years old when Jesus walked into that temple. Herod helped beautify some of the Jewish uh, monuments and historic sites during his time. He did a lot of things that from a worldly perspective were considered beneficial for the people under Roman rule. But he was a tyrant. Herod the Great was the one who wanted to destroy the baby Jesus and prevent the Messiah from coming into the world. Herod the Great is the one who had all the little babies in Bethlehem, two years old and under, slaughtered. Later you have Herod Antipas. That was his son. He's the one that was on the throne when Joseph took Mary and Jesus back to Nazareth. Herod Antipas is the one that was open to the words of John the Baptist, that was intrigued by John the Baptist preaching, but ultimately betrayed him and had John the Baptist beheaded. Later, we see two other Herods. There was a Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12 who allowed people to worship him and thought himself a god, and then we're told God struck him with worms, and he fell down dead in the presence of the people. That same Herod Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great. But he was not the son of Herod Antipas. He was the son of another of Herod the Great's children, Aristobulus IV. So Herod Agrippa was taken in his own naughtiness. He, put, he killed James the Apostle. He had James the Apostle, the brother of John, killed with the sword. 
And then he, threw, then he threw Peter in prison. And for a while to the early church, it looked like all hope was lost. But then suddenly, Peter was let out of prison and was openly preaching the gospel and Herod Agrippa fell down dead, eaten of worms. Suddenly, he was taken in his own naughtiness. Then there was Herod Agrippa II, the son of the one that died of worms. He was the one that came and heard, married his sister, incestuous fornication, but he came and heard what Paul had to say with Governor Festus and was open and, and said to Paul, almost you've persuaded me to be a Christian today. Paul didn't beg and plead with him. He said, I would that that were so. I wish that all hearing me would be as I am, faith in the Messiah, just not imprisoned like me. So there's four different Herods in the Bible and they all have an interesting part in the story of God's plan and purpose through the Messiah. But Herod the Great, we know he died. That's what the New Testament says, but we're not told any details. He died just before Passover, 4 B.C. That's what history attests to. So Christ, the B.C. A.D. division wasn't put in our calendar for many years after, and it was put in by the Catholic Church and the Pope. And... It doesn't reflect accurately. We know that Herod died according to that calendar, 4 B.C. So Jesus would have been born sometime before April, March, late March, early April of 4 B.C. The wise men would have probably come about around six months after his birth. Joseph would have fled to Egypt. And by Passover, Herod was dead. How did Herod die? Well... For years, it was debated whether or not the Bible could even be true because there was this talk of Herod the Great in the Bible, but they'd never found his tomb. Was he even a real historic person? That's what liberals and critics have argued for a long time that, hey, this is proof of the Bible. Where's this Herod the Great? His tomb was discovered in 2007 at a place called Herodium in Israel. I've been there. I've walked it. It's an old tale. Eric and I climbed to the top of it. You can't get down in there, but they found his tomb. It was discovered. And the Bible was right all along. His death was described in these words. He died very suddenly after murdering those babies. Intense itching, painful intestinal problems, breathlessness, convulsions in every limb and gangrene that rotted off his genitalia. We call that Fournier's gangrene. God got the last laugh, my friends. Don't you think that God can't pull down this wicked evil in Washington like that? Yes. We don't need to look to men to deliver us. We need to look to God. Yes. Jesus said in Luke 18... That if the unjust judge would hear the widow pleading with him to avenge her of her adversary, and he would do it because he was tired of being bugged, that we can bug God. Because God hears. He's not an unjust judge. And we need to not be so concerned about the plans and the times and the seasons that God has in his power. The disciples were told when Jesus ascended to heaven, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel right now? 
Don't concern yourself with the time and the seasons. This is what I want you to do. Go and teach all nations. And as we do that, we can look to be delivered. We can look to be delivered. Herod was taken in his own naughtiness. Rest assured the wicked that have taken over our country. And they've, done, they've been doing this for a while. That they will be taken. But the righteous will be delivered. And where, when it comes to our country in particular, one of many Gentile nations, you need to understand there are only three types of people in God's earth on, under God's rule that he created. Three types that the Bible speaks of. There are Jews. What are Jews? They are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A, a, a people that God chose out and raised up to declare unto the world who God is. There are Jews. There are Gentiles. Gentiles are all the nations of the world that are not descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then there's a third group of people. That is the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ. What is the bride of Christ? It is Jews and Gentiles redeemed by the blood of Messiah in one body. In one body. And so that bride of Christ, there are Jews and Gentiles in the modern state of Israel today. There are Jews and Gentiles in the Gentile nations all over the world. And there is a remnant of the church in every nation of the world. But there's a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament that I, I think speaks particularly to the element of that body of Christ that's in this nation that yet remains today. And I want to look at it. Turn to Isaiah chapter 18. One thing we can be assured of, the wicked are taken in their own naughtiness, just like it says here in Proverbs 11, verse 6. Herod was taken. Herod the first Agrippa was taken. The USA, our nation, will be taken in its own naughtiness. We need to understand that. Because when it comes to the nations of the world, there's only one entity that God has promised a blessing in the end, and that is Israel. The Gentile nations, from America to Russia to China to every empire in the history of the world, will be scattered like the chaff. The promised end of the Gentile nations is God's judgment. The promised end of Israel is blessing out of judgment. And Isaiah tells us that all the Gentile nations, the superpower of America included, are like a drop in the bucket before God. Like the chaff of the wind. God can bring down a superpower with nuclear capability by a few men on horseback, if he so desires. And I think he taught us that lesson on January the 6th. All of these people in Congress that claim to have so much power and they claim to care about you were hiding under desk and in fear for their lives when a few people were led into a building carrying around flags and posters and a window was broken and a table might have been turned over and they were cowering in fear. 
The Bible says the wicked flee when no man pursues. And the slothful and the lazy say, oh, there's a lion in the street. There's a lion in the street. I can't go out. God showed us he can bring down a nation with a few people with flags and banners. I was there. I was there. I saw with my own eyes. We were preaching the gospel. We didn't go to Washington to stump for President Trump. If we had, we'd, be, we'd feel depressed and betrayed. We went there to preach the gospel, and what we saw is not what you're being told in the media. It's not. But it was God demonstrating he could bring this nation down. Isaiah 18. I want you to keep that in mind. This nation will be taken in its own naughtiness. We're told in chapter 18 of the prophet, Woe to the land shadowing with wings which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, that sendeth ambassadors by the sea, even in vessels of bulrushes upon the waters, saying, Go, ye swift messengers, to a nation scattered and peeled, to a people terrible from their beginning, hitherto or until now, a nation meted out and trodden down, whose land the rivers have spoiled. So here in these first two verses, we, are ha- we have two nations being addressed here. There's two nations. There's a land that is shadowing with wings to whom is proclaimed woe. And this land that shadows with wings sends its ambassadors to another nation, another people. This is a people that is scattered and peeled and that have been terrible and feared from their beginning. So there are two different nations being addressed here. Verse 3. All you inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth, see ye when he, that is God, lift up an ensign on the mountains, and when he bloweth a trumpet, hear ye. For so the Lord said unto me, I will take my rest, and I will consider in my dwelling place like a clear heat upon herbs. And like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For afore the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he shall both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. So when this tree is budding and the fruit is coming forth, God is suddenly going to cut it down. They, those cut down, shall be left together unto the fowls of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth. And the fowls shall summer upon them and all the beasts of the earth shall winter upon them. In that time, so at this same time, when the tree is cut down and cast to the birds, shall the present be brought unto the Lord of hosts from a particular people, from a people scattered and peeled, and from a people terrible from their beginning hitherto, a nation meted out and trodden underfoot, whose lands the river have spoiled. Where will they be brought, this present? To the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, the Mount Zion. So we have two nations here. Woe to the land shadowing with wings. And then we have a nation that is scattered and peeled. Their people have been feared from its beginning. That nation is cut down when it looks to be blooming again, 
But at that time when the nation is cut down, God receives a great present of the people of that nation brought to Him. In this context, it's the heavenly Mount Zion as I see it. So I want you to think about something. There's no doubt that the United States politically is key in these times to the existence of the survival, and the future direction of the modern state of Israel. Israel admits that. It's government. It does nothing without looking to the United States for support. So that is a fact of history. The modern state of Israel, its existence, its continued existence is dependent in some point or to a great point on what happens with the United States. On May 14th, 1948, this is what, in my opinion, distinguishes a true president from one who talks and does nothing. Harry Truman was president when Israel, when the the, uh, uh, expiration of the, the, the agreement with the land of Palestine came up. Israel declared its independence. The agreement that had uh, been invoked in World War I, came to an end. Israel declared its independence, declared itself a Jewish nation. And what was important was whether or not the nations of the world would recognize that. Because Israel declared its independence and then was immediately attacked by the surrounding nations. And so Israel was looking to the United States to recognize its independence. At that time, Harry Truman, the president, was seeking the right path. What is right? Harry Truman was surrounded by advisors that advised him to stay out of it. His cabinet, members of Congress and both houses, the news media were all against the Jews having a homeland. And they advised the president, do not recognize the independence of this nation. At the time, Harry Truman was wrestling with these things. He sent a letter, I believe it was to his brother, and he had come to the conclusion, sometimes you have to do what's right and tell the rest of the world to go to hell. And he wrote a note, May 14th, 1948, the United States, by the authority vested in me, recognizes the provisional government of the state of Israel. Harry Truman did what was right and did not care what the consequences would be for his political future. And he went against every one of his advisors to do what was right. Come January 20th, you are going to know beyond a shadow of a doubt whether Donald Trump is like Harry Truman Or he's like James Buchanan who sat on his hands and did nothing up until the inauguration of 1860 to avert or thwart civil war. Come January 20th, you will know if Donald Trump is a real president or if he's a charlatan and becomes the enemy just like all the rest. Will he do what's right? And will he do something to effect and stop an usurper a communist Chinese puppet from taking power in our nation, or will he not? Righteous men do what's right regardless of what the rest of the world says. And Harry Truman's an example of that. 
But the USA is key to Israel's existence, survival, and future direction. Now, um, surrounding this chapter in Isaiah, it's interesting to me. Chapters 15 and 16 deals with Moab. Chapter 17 is prophecy against Damascus or Syria. Chapter 19 is prophecy against Egypt. These countries are all part of the land grant that God promised to Abraham in Genesis 15. The land is mine, God said. The land of Israel doesn't belong to Israel. It belongs to God. And God has promised or granted or leased it to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the borders that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 15 have never been, have never been possessed fully by Israel. But Moab, Damascus, and Egypt were all included in that land grant. So what we see here is nations being prophesied against in this context that are key and tied to what transpires with the modern state of Israel. Egypt, Syria, Jordan, all of these nations. So it's amidst these prophecies against Gentile nations that are key to events with Israel in the last days that we see this prophecy against an unknown nation, terrible from its beginning. So contextually, it's tied to Israel's uh, happenings. Something else to consider, the largest congregation of Jews outside of Israel in the world today is right here in the United States. In fact, if you go by what the Israeli government defines as a Jew, one who qualifies for Israeli citizenship, 30% of those who would qualify for Israeli citizenship in the world live in Israel. 51% of those live in the United States. So there's a whole big group of Jewish people that ought to be going back to the land, that will go back to the land because the Bible prophesies it in Jeremiah 30, that are, that are comfortable right here. That's something to consider. Something drastic is going to have to happen to make sure they go back because Jeremiah prophesies it. So something drastic is going to have to happen in this country. That may be what all of this present political chaos is about. Maybe it's not about us. Maybe it's not about this country. God always has a bigger picture. And the conclusion or the culmination is the reign of Messiah on this earth. So maybe everything we're seeing now is to get the Jews up off their butts out of their Babylonian comfort and get them back to the land in unbelief so God can begin to do His work there. How arrogant are we as Americans to think that the whole world revolves around us? That is an arrogance that is disgusting to me. And you see it in the way we act when we travel. I've been guilty. The young people who have served on our summer missions teams in, in, in India and in South America, I've had to rebuke them for it. You see it when... Americans are known as loud, obnoxious, and they always think they're right. That's just the joke about Americans in places I've lived around. And it's true. We walk into these places in other countries and we expect, you know, Eric, Mindy, I think you were there. Were you there? You expected the poor Tibetan lady at the breakfast place to understand your English? And when your order wasn't right 
and everybody started complaining. You just thought she should understand your English and fix it. And I said, I, I know you wanted, what was it? A, but, but somebody wanted a banana pancake and got something else. And I just said, eat your banana pancake. You guys are so ethnocentric. And I rebuked it sharply because I had seen it in my own life. But we are an arrogant people. I don't mean to call these folks out. They're good people who love the Lord. <laughs> hey, they weren't ethnocentric when, when I traveled, to, traveled and met with them in Columbia last January. Neither was Michael. He was a good little boy. We drove all over that country. We climbed that mountain pass, and the Colombian said, if you can drive over that mountain pass and survive, you can drive any road in the world. And we did it in a little tiny little car. Crazy time. This was the last time we traveled outside America. It's hard to believe, a year ago. But we are arrogant to think the entire world revolves around us. That's what Congress thinks. Congress thinks that the entire world revolves around them. And what they want, and their safety, and their rules, and their dictates is more important than you. That's what they think. Democrats and Republicans. We have an arrogance even in our military ranks. Arrogance. That we're the greatest army in the world. Those that, some that are in the military, some that have family members in the military have a sad arrogance. We saw it on display here in Hickory Friday night. Some young people were so angry because I was standing on a corner with an American flag turned upside down. How dare you? One young man in a slew of cursings. If I'd have, it could have been Hare Krishna's on the corner preaching a false doctrine and banging their tambourines in my day as a, as a teenager. And if it had got back to my parents that I had talked to an adult the way some of those teens talked to us Friday night, it wouldn't have mattered if it was Hare Krishna's or Mormons or whoever. I'd have been in big trouble when I got home. But some of the disrespect. But oh, the flag. You better turn that blankety-blank flag right back up or I'm going to take it and do this blankety-blank with blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, you young people need to get an education. Have you ever read the United States Flag Code? Section 8, A? There is a time when it's completely appropriate to turn that flag upside down in a time when the republic is in distress a matter of life or death, and if that's not now, I don't know when it is. But just an arrogance. You couldn't stand here if it weren't for my brother in the military. My, your freedom comes from my brother in the military. Where in, who is fighting for my freedom in the American military today? Where? In Afghanistan? Is my freedom being threatened by Afghanis on horseback? Or maybe it's Iraq. Is my freedom threatened by people roving around the desert that couldn't even stand and, and, and resist the invasion in Desert Storm? No. My freedom's being threatened in Washington. Yes. And what is the military doing? It's guarding it, protecting it. So are we going to be willing to call evil evil? Or are we so married to our Americanism that we can't see it? Because we're arrogant people. We are, myself included. I'm near the top. I'm pretty arrogant and prideful. I can be. But 
My friends, the world doesn't revolve around this country, and God is going to fulfill his promises with regard to Israel and the church, irrespective of America. And what we're seeing today is nothing falling apart, per se. It's things falling into place. The days of the coming of our Lord. So we can be, we can be angry and vexed at the evil, but we can be hopeful. We can, have, we can uh, realize that our allegiance is not to a flag. It's to the Messiah. I pledge no allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic that long ago died. One nation no longer under God with liberty for only some and justice for none. That's what we live in today. Is there justice in this country? Yeah. Is there justice for the unborn? No. Is there justice for the righteous? For the Christians? Is there justice against the criminals who get away with everything? They do it in the open. And there's no punishment. The people. I don't care where you are on the political spectrum as a person. The average Joe is a nobody in the eyes of our government. The average Joe, whether he's on the left or the right, has no representation. There is no justice. There are four boxes that defend liberty. And we know that liberty is a gift of God. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty and not bondage. It's not God's will for His people to be in bondage. He brought them out of the bondage of Egypt. It's not God's will. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And there are four boxes that defend liberty as our founding fathers saw it. There's the ballot box. Defend liberty. There's the jury box. Did you know that the juror in America, according to the founding fathers' understanding, the Constitution, is actually above the law? That the juror has, that the individual juror has the ability to check the prosecutor and the government and by one vote can hang a jury and keep the government from implementing tyranny. But our government has led us to believe that you have to do what a judge says when you're a juror. It's been corrupted. The jury box, the ballot box have been corrupted. There's nothing left for it. But guys, there's two other boxes. One is a soapbox. We stood on a soapbox, proverbially speaking, Friday night. And we called evil exactly what it is. And we can stand in our churches and we can call evil what it is. We can call good what it is. And we can lift up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who is supreme over all. When we preached at the Capitol on January the 6th, it really saddened me to see people misplace their hope and trust in a man. We were told, Donald Trump is God's anointed. My friends, there's only one anointed That word anointed in Hebrew, Mashiach, means Messiah. When David spoke of touch not God's anointed, the anointed through the line of Messiah. The Messiah is the anointed one of God. We should be looking to Him. It's sad. We're an arrogant people. But America's present political situation may be about something far bigger. And we need to understand that. God's... The the, the Jews are going to go back home one way or another because the Bible prophesies it. But in the midst of all this, we have a strange chapter smack dab in the middle of prophecy against Gentile nations that are specifically tied to Israel in the last days. By virtue of Genesis 15, 
which is a promise of a land grant with borders that have never been recognized from the Euphrates all the way to the Nile River. Never been possessed. When we look at chapter 18, most commentators would argue that this is talking about Ethiopia. Could be, maybe, I don't know. Back in those days, it would make some sense. But Ethiopia was never a prominent nation in Old Testament history. In 2 Chronicles chapter 12, the Ethiopians fielded a million-man army that invaded Judah. And King Asa looked to the Lord for deliverance. And God gave them deliverance. And the Lubims and the Ethiopians fled off in the desert. And never bothered Israel again. And then Asa forgot about all that at the end of his life and started making political alliances with wicked people instead of seeking the Lord. And the prophet rebuked him for it and was thrown in prison. But there was... Ethiopian queen came to Solomon, Candace, looking for the wisdom of Solomon. So Ethiopia had a place, but this prophecy makes no sense... On the far horizon, remember all Old Testament prophecy has a near horizon that proves something that would happen in the near future that would prove or be a sign that the ultimate or the far future would surely take place. But Ethiopia makes no sense. Ethiopia was never a nation or a kingdom that was feared from its beginning. Never. It makes no sense. Whatever this nation is in Isaiah 18... God has a quarrel related with. God has a quarrel with it related to the people of Israel. The same quarrel he has with Moab, Damascus, and Egypt. God has a quarrel with it. And he's going to do something. Let's just look briefly, verse by verse. Verse 1. Woe to a land that shadows with wings. Shadowing. The wings shadow and cover over. Or they were. Flapping. <clears throat> creates a shadow. Woe to the land that shadows or whirs with wings. In other words, its influence is spread out over the earth. This nation is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. In ancient times, west and beyond the rivers of Ethiopia was a way of describing the rest of the world outside the ancient Near East or beyond the rivers of Cush, the rest of the world in ancient times. So this nation is out there beyond, okay? Often you'd see the, uh, the, the word Kittim in the Old Testament. Kittim is another word that talked about the isles, those far-off lands. And we see it referencing the Roman Empire at other times in the Old Testament. When I think of a land beyond the river, beyond the ancient Near East that shadowed the nations with his wings, I can't help but think about the symbol of the Roman Empire, the Roman eagle that shadowed with wings. And out of the Roman Empire came what? Every one of the modern nation states of Europe is the remnant of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire never died. The nation states of Europe, the Spanish, the French, the British, the Dutch, the Italians, all came from the Roman Empire beyond the rivers of Ethiopia that shadowed. 
And we look at history. We look at the nation states of Europe, all through the Middle Ages and the Industrial Revolution, up until this nation was settled, influence all over the whole world. They sent explorers, navigators, explored the entire planet. Sick colonists that explored and went up rivers and claimed new lands on different continents. What does this land shadowing with wings do? Verse 2, it sends ambassadors over the sea, even in vessels of bulrushes or canoes or small boats. It sends ambassadors over the sea, even up the rivers, where? To a strange nation. So the land shadowing with wings sends ambassadors over the sea to a strange nation. Some of you kids that study American history, do you know how this land was settled? It wasn't one people that came. People fled Europe and came to Plymouth Rock. Some came to Jamestown. The Spanish came to St. Augustine, Florida, and they found the French Huguenots there. The Vikings explored North America. Evidence of Viking settlements. The nation states of Europe sent ambassadors over the sea. And some of them even went up rivers to explore on canoes. The French fur traders. The British. And where did they go? They went to a strange nation. Scattered and peeled to a people terrible from their beginning hitherto. So woe to the ones that sent the ambassadors across the sea. They went up the rivers in boats and canoes and vessels of bulrushes to another nation. What is that nation that's being targeted here? It's a nation that is scattered and peeled. Now those words, it's interesting to look at them in Hebrew. It is what it means. Some translations would say scattered means tall, to a tall people. And the Ethiopians were tall. It doesn't mean that. It's not the word for tall in Hebrew. It means scattered. In the Spanish Bible, we see the word dispersada. Scattered, dispersed. Peeled. Peeled means peeled off or scraped off. It's like when you file down metal. Raida in Spanish. The filings are peeled off. So this nation that's being talked about is scattered and it's peeled off of the land shadowing with wings. Okay? A good analogy would be this. When I think of that word scattered and I think of peeled, I always put my gum on the pulpit. And I often forget it. And it's there today because I'm going to read it. When I think of those Hebrew verbs, so I'm going to hold this gum, and what am I going to do? I'm going to stretch it. I'm going to scatter it, disperse it, and then eventually... This one's not. It's going to come off, right? It's going to come off. Eventually, it's going to come off. So this nation is a nation of people that are scattered. They're stretched and pulled from the land shadowing with wings, and they're peeled. They're pulled to the point that they're separate. They're an independent people. So a nation that is stretched or dispersed or drawn out of something, out of, but independent. Is that not what the history of this nation is? Out of the nation states of Europe, which is the remnants of the Roman Empire, out of, stretched, scattered, and 
peeled off. And this nation, scattered and peeled, is a people terrible from their beginning. That word terrible in Hebrew means feared and respected. What nation in modern history has been considered terrible, feared, and respected from its very beginning? Ask King George and the British. Ask the British who actually... It's funny to hear these fools in Washington talk about a few people turning over a piece of furniture and breaking a window in the Capitol. It's one of the darkest days in American history. I mean, I guess they forgot that 600,000 Americans were killed in the Civil War. I guess they forgot that four presidents had been assassinated. I guess they forgot that the British in 1812 walked into the Capitol in the White House and set it on fire and burned it to the ground. But ask the British who was terrible from their beginning that faced off against the American, the strange mix of American colon, uh, American citizens at New Orleans in 1815 under General Andrew Jackson. Ask them. Even in the Civil War, did you know that at the time the Civil War took place, the Yankee fielded the largest standing army on the planet? Guess what was the, either the sec- second or the third largest standing army on the planet? The Confederate States of America. The British may have been second. But during the Civil War, you had a a nation at war with itself, two nations that fielded two of the largest armies on the planet. Even when they were fighting each other, they fielded enough of an army, the, the, the two separate nations, to fight anybody else. That's why the British and the French didn't get involved. That's why the Mexicans talked a big talk but didn't cross the border under Napoleon III. Feared terrible from its beginning. What nation in modern history has been feared and respected from its beginning? You can't say this about the Gentile kingdoms, the ancient Gentile kingdoms. Babylon was not feared from its beginning. The Babylonians were nobodies when they sent ambassadors to King Hezekiah. And he showed them all the glories of the temple and his house and his riches. And Isaiah said, one day, Babylon's going to come and destroy this temple, and they're going to carry off everything you've showed them. Hezekiah laughed. What? These people? Well, whatever. It won't happen in my days. So Babylon wasn't terrible from its beginning. The Persians weren't terrible from their beginning. The Medes fought against the Assyrians. The Medes were a thorn at times in the side of Babylon, but like like a flea were flicked away. They eventually came to power. The Greeks weren't terrible from their beginning. They were a bunch of warring nation-states at war with each other. The Roman Empire existed long before it became a world power. I think it was 156 B.C. when the Greeks were defeated at Corinth. But Rome had been around for a long time. In fact, the Romans dated their beginning like 700 B.C. when the city of Rome. So none of those empires were terrible from their beginning. The European nation-states weren't terrible from their beginning because their beginning was a Roman Empire. Their beginning as nation-states was weak and overrun by barbarians. But the United States has been terrible from its beginning as regards the rest of the earth. It says this nation was meted out, trodden down, and spoiled by rivers. Study American history. Do you remember Manifest Destiny? The idea that it was the duty of American republicanism to march west and to mete out the land from sea to shining sea. And what happened? The settlers moved west and trod it down. 
They trod it down in such a way you used to could travel across the Great Plains and as far as the eye could see were herds of bison and buffalo. But the settlers trod it down and for sport they shot and killed. Almost brought that animal to extinction. Trodden down. Spoiled by rivers. Where do America's major cities that spoil the land even today, where are they situated? On the rivers. Men went up the rivers. America has an incredible river system unlike any other nation in the world that supplies the whole land, this incredible network. And men traveled up them, built their cities on their banks. Think of the major cities on the Mississippi River, the Missouri, the Ohio, the Ohio River. (laughs) The rivers have spoiled this nation. I mean, I read this and I look at American history, I think, man, if this isn't talking about the United States, wow, it certainly applies. Verse 3, when God does something regarding this nation, terrible from its beginning, what's going to happen? All the world's going to take notice. And when he blows a trumpet, It's going to profoundly affect not only that nation, but the rest of the world. All you inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth, see ye. Look, pay attention, when he, the Lord, lifts up an ensign on the mountains and when he blows a trumpet, pay attention. So when God blows a trumpet and does something with this nation, it's going to affect the rest of the world. The other world needs to listen. The rest of the world needs to listen and pay attention. That's what this scripture tells us. Verse 4, regarding this nation, terrible from its beginning, peeled off of the land shadowing with wings beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, regarding this nation, though God seems unconcerned and quiet about the distress of his people as relates to this nation, though he sees all and waits, verse 4, Verse 5, he will suddenly act. He will suddenly act and cut it off. For so the Lord said unto me, I will take my rest. I'm going to rest. I will consider in my dwelling place like a clear heat upon herbs and like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. But before the harvest, when the bud is perfect, the grape is ripening in the flower, he's going to act. What is he going to do? He's going to cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. When this nation seems to be at the point of harvest, seems to be becoming great again, when the bud is perfect and the fruit is ripening, it will suddenly be cut off. And where will it be cut? And cast to the birds. Verse 6. After God acts, this once terrible nation will be left as fodder for the fowls and the beast. And it won't be in secret. It will be very publicly. You think about all of this MAGA we've been fed for four years. I mean, if this is the end of it, the installation of a communist puppet, then all of this so-called harvest, make America great again, what have we seen? Cut right off. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen on Wednesday. I don't know 
if we, we can call that a fulfillment here. I just know that men put their hope in a lot of stuff that wasn't God and wasn't Jesus Christ, and it appears to have been cut off. We can wait and see. It's not official till Wednesday. But all of these political things we put our hope in can so easily be cut off. Psalm 127.1, if there's an error that the president has made, it's a grave error. It's this. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keeps the city, the watchman waiteth but in vain. Have we put our energy into politics and forgotten that if the God doesn't build this house, it will not stand? How can we be right with God as a nation if we don't start from a point of national repentance? We don't repent for the crimes of this nation. How can we be right with Him? And I've been waiting for four years for the president or the vice president to call the nation repentance. Now, I appreciate some of the things he did. I voted for him twice. I'm done voting. I'm not going to waste my time anymore. But... Without repentance, things can't be made right. And we can look like a harvest is coming, but it can suddenly be cut off. Just like the farmer in the third world who labors in the fields, prepares everything for harvest, and it starts to bloom like in South Asia we've seen, and then suddenly this hailstorm will come from a cyclone off the Bay of Bengal and destroy all of it. I remember in Nepal, people would lose their crops at the time of harvest because of a freak lightning storm with hail. Everything they'd work for cut off. Those in the third world understand these things. We don't because we've been shielded from it in our country. That's why we're so weak. We haven't had to work for anything. It's all been handed to us. So at, at the time when a terrible nation is ripening again, it is suddenly cut off. Now we're told here that there's an image of something being left to the fowls of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth and the fowls will rest or summer upon them and the beasts of earth will winter upon them. Something is left for the beast and the fowls to feed upon. This reminds me of Jesus' words. Remember, Jesus' words were never independent of God's word revealed in the Old Testament. Matthew 24, 28, Jesus refers to His coming and then he says, wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. So there's a carcass where the birds or the eagles are gathered together to feed upon it. When you go over to Luke 17, this same phrase refers specifically to the time when two will be in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left behind. And then the disciples ask Jesus, where? We think they're asking him, where are they going to be taken? That wasn't what they're asking. They're asking where they're going to be left. In Luke chapter 17, after Jesus tells them, I tell you, verse 34, and, and that night two will be in the bed, the one shall be taken, the other left. The word taken there is exactly what was done with Enoch before the judgment. Two women shall be grinding at the stone, or grinding together, the one shall be taken, the other left. 
Two men in the field, one shall be taken. Remember that word taken in Greek, paralambano, the same verb that was used when Joseph took Mary to be his wife. The same word that Jesus used when he talks about receiving his bride, the church, to himself. One shall be taken, the other left. And they, his disciples, answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? Where are they going to be left? And he said unto him, Wheresoever the body is, there will the eagles be gathered together. They're going to be left as fodder for the birds of heaven. That imagery is right there in Isaiah 18. That is the same image that the prophet... Jesus is alluding to that. The living word is always alluding to the written word. Now, however... The end of the story is not bad. There's a happy ending for this terrible nation. This terrible nation, the United States, terrible from its beginning, has also been an instrument of God. It's been a place of haven for the Jewish people. It's also been the jumping off point for the gospel to go into all nations through the missionaries and the churches and the faithful down through the ages. So... There's hope. In that time, when God cuts off this nation, a present will be brought to Him of that people that were scattered, stretched from another, and peeled off and independent. A people terrible from their beginning. When God judges this nation that is tied to Israel in the last days, it won't be without a present being brought to Him of that people. That word in Hebrew, present, is shy. In our ministry to share the gospel with Israelis, particularly those that get out of the army and travel, we meet people, and we meet a lot of people with the same names. We can't keep up with them. One of the common names we, 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 we find is Tal. Tal can be a boy or a girl. But I've met people with this name, Shai. Shai means gift. I mean, they'll tell you, it means gift. My name means gift. Gift present that's the word here in Hebrew shy at that time God will receive or be given a great gift of the nation scattered and peeled terrible from its beginning that present will be brought to him of that people of the nation that was meted out and trodden underfoot whose land the rivers is spoiled that gift will be brought to him to his place to his Mount Zion. What does John see in Revelation 4 after he's raptured? John said, I saw a door opened in heaven and a a voice said, come up here and he's up there. And then he's suddenly in the throne room and the lamb that was slain comes out and he is worthy to open a scroll. And what does John see? He sees thousands upon thousands giving honor to the lamb and they sing The elders sing, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive honor and glory and power because you have redeemed us out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. The church is in heaven. And guess what that church includes? It includes a present from a nation terrible from its beginning. The largest concentration of evangelical believers is still in America today, by far. 
you know, some say it's 25 to 28%. I think that's really over-exaggerating. But the largest congregation of Bible-believing Christians of any nation is still in America today. It still is an influence here. I know this because I've lived in countries where there is a remnant, there is a, a church, there is... Our congregations of believers, but the idolatry and the, the spiritual darkness is, 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 is like a pressing down on the society. But you come back here, as wicked as it is, there's still a witness here. There's still a light. The largest concentration of believers is still today in America. What would happen if that congregation of believers were taken out suddenly as a present to the place of the Lord, will it not profoundly affect Israel and the world in terms of his program for the last days? And that's what the greater context is. Judgment against nations where the judgments against them will profoundly affect God's program for Israel in the last days. And one of those nations is an unnamed nation, terrible from its beginning, stretched out, and peeled off, whose land was meted out, the river spoiled. I think about the role of the church today in the world. A big part of it is the American church, even as apostate as it is. There's still a remnant here. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians, just bear with me, I'm almost done. I know we're going to have a baptism. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 Paul says, I beseech you, brethren. Now, he had already taught the Thessalonians about the rapture. And he had mentioned the coming or the day of Christ in chapter 1. He described it as a day of flaming fire when Christ will come to take vengeance on those that know not the gospel. That is the second coming. That is the day of Christ. It's already there, chapter 1, 7, and 8. And then Paul goes on to say, look, I want to beseech you by two things. The coming of Christ, what he just described, and our gathering together unto him, something different. Don't be troubled and don't be deceived to think that the day of Christ is already upon us. What is the day of Christ? Chapter 1, Christ coming in flaming fire. Don't be deceived to think that day is upon us because that day can't come. The return of Christ, the second coming, the flaming fire and vengeance... Not what's described in chapter 4 of the first epistle. It won't come unless there is a falling away first. That falling away, that word in the original language is where we get the word apostasy in English. Apostasia in Greek. There's an apostasy. And the man of sin, the Antichrist, will be revealed the son of perdition. And then he goes on to describe that. That coming of the, the Antichrist. We know his spirit is already here, but the one, the man is coming. And Paul says, remember, I told you about these things. Verse 5, Paul had already taught him about this stuff. But now, he said, verse 6, you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. So there's a what that withholds or restrains Antichrist the man from coming on the scene. There's a what? And then verse 7. 
for the mystery of iniquity is all, doth already work. The mystery's already working. There's a what that is keeping the man from coming on the scene. And then only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. So there's also a he that lets. That word let is an old word. It's, it's related to the game of tennis. You hear that word. It's to restrain it, to hold back. And, we, and we're told that in verse 6. You know, let is defined in verse 6. The Bible often defines itself. So there's a what and a he that are withholding or holding back the coming of Antichrist on the scene. And they are going to hold, or he and what are going to withhold until he is taken out of the way. Then shall that wicked be revealed. So when he who withholds, along with what that withholds, is taken out of the way, then the, son, the, the Antichrist, the son of perdition, will be revealed. So something is holding it back. A what and a he. Or what is the he? Who is it that teaches the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a restrainer. The he who withholds. But what is the what? Who does the, or what does the Holy Spirit indwell? The church. The church and the spirit that indwells it are restrainers. And they're going to be taken out of the way. And when they are taken out of the way, all hell's going to break loose. And nothing will stop the Antichrist. Jesus describes it as a time like Noah. Men are buying and selling. They're marrying, getting married. It's a time of relative peace. And then suddenly, two are in the field. One is taken, the other left. And chaos breaks loose. When the church is taken out of the way, Antichrist will rise and be revealed. In other words, when the church, a good part of it, which is Americans, are taken out and given as a president to the Lord, the entire world is going to take notice. And it will profoundly affect the entire world. Is Isaiah 18 being fulfilled right now before our eyes? I don't know. I mean... I do see that the hope a lot of people put in making America great again seems to have suddenly come crashing down. I do know we're living in a time when the things are being put together to set up the rise of the one world government. I do know that when the church is gone, there will be no restraint. Regardless of how weak we think we are, our presence here by being indwelt by the Holy Spirit restrains evil. That's why we can go out and stand on that street corner and know God will use it. Notwithstanding whatever you think, the present of a terrible people taken out and given to the Lord is an Old Testament seed of the rapture of God's people, particularly those out of a very influential and terrible nation in the last days. That's what we see. This is the rapture, and the rapture is described as a gift given to God out of judgment. I believe this chapter is talking about our nation. It's unnamed. Historically, I can think of no other nation that's been terrible from its beginning, even till now. And when God takes the church out, no longer. It will profoundly affect this nation. And it's funny how when you watch Hollywood, the devil 
is so conniving that he doesn't deceive without putting the truth out there in plain sight. He's always done that. You see, the people in Jesus' day had no excuse for not understanding and believing that Jesus was the Messiah because even the devils preached it. Even the devils possessed, the demon-possessed people preached it. This is the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God. The devil loves putting the truth out there in plain sight because he knows we're too blind to care. And Hollywood puts the truth of these things out there. They're an instrument of the devil. Go back and watch a lot of these popular superheroes movies and different things in recent years. This stuff is right there because the devil knows it's true. And he wants you to divorce it from God's rule and reign and wants you to associate it with fairy tales and fantasy. Raptures, people suddenly taken out, and then the whole world falls apart. Can you think of a movie not too long ago where people suddenly disappeared, and then planes were crashing, cars, and the whole world was messed up? The devils know what they're doing. This is stuff in the scriptures. And they put it out there to distract us and to cause us to make light of it. That's what the devil does. It is interesting that in Isaiah 18, the present or the gift of God from this nation of verse 7 is linked to the blowing of a trumpet, God's trumpet in verse 3. God's going to blow a trumpet. He's going to receive a present, and that nation is going to fall and be cast to the birds. In Isaiah 18, we have a trumpet of God that is blown. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, when the dead in Christ rise first and the we which are alive and remain are caught up, it'll happen when the trump of God is blown. 1 Corinthians 15, it's the last trump. Isaiah 18 has the trump of God. A very interesting connection. There's one last um, Old Testament direct reference to the rapture and I've talked about it before but I don't so I don't want to go into detail but let me just end with this if you look at Leviticus chapter 23 we preach long here guys but we always eat afterwards so you guys <laughs> rest assured at least some food we got to work up that appetite Leviticus 23 verses 24 and 25 this is God giving Israel its calendar the calendar of celebrations It is to celebrate and observe. And in these celebrations, they point to Messiah. And Israel was to keep them. Verses 23, chapter 23, verse 24 and 25. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, that you shall have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Here we have the Feast of Trumpets on Israel's calendar. Leviticus 23 gives us seven annual feasts or celebrations that Israel was to observe. You have the four feasts in the spring. It begins with Passover. Then you have the first fruits. And then you have or, or Passover and then unleavened bread. And then you have first fruits and Pentecost. Those are your four spring feasts. Christ, 
literally fulfilled these four spring feasts at his first coming. He was crucified on Passover, A.D. 30. On the first day of unleavened bread, he was put in the ground. And on the Feast of Firstfruits, that year, A.D. 30, was three days after Passover. It could have only been that in A.D. 30 because Firstfruits was a certain amount of time and it would differ based on the weekly Sabbath. So, first fruits, he was raised from the dead. And then on Pentecost of AD 30, the Holy Spirit came down. Those feasts were fulfilled by Christ. He was our Passover. He was our unleavened bread that was buried. And he was our first fruits that rose from the grave. And then on Pentecost, that was meant to uh, celebrate the giving of the law. Remember when the law was given? Uh, 3,000 perished, but the Holy Spirit was given. 3,000 were born again there in Jerusalem. It was fulfilled. But then there are three fall feasts. And the first of these is the Feast of Trumpets in the fall season. The Feast of Trumpets comes on the first day of the month Tishri. It's the only feast that happens on the first day of the month. And then on the 10th day of Tishri, you have the Feast of Atonement, the Day of Atonement. And then for a week... From the 15th to the 22nd of the month Tishri, you have the Feast of Tabernacles. Those feasts, I believe, Christ will fulfill at his second coming. And the Feast of Trumpets, I believe, is a picture of what Christ is going to do at the rapture. The Feast of Atonement is a picture of what Christ is going to do with Israel to bring them to a place of repentance and the Feast of Tabernacles, when God dwells with His people, is exactly what we see in Revelation 21. The kingdom, when God comes down through Christ and lives and reigns. The Feast of Trumpets was, on two, was to be the first day of the month, the month of Tishri. It's around October each year. And what Israel was to do, the trumpet that was blown was called the Tekiah Gedola. We talked about this back in Revelation 4. And the imagery was when the, the people were waiting for the trumpet to blow, to let them know that the feast had begun. They were to literally drop what they were doing in the field and bring an offering or a present to the Lord. So imagine this in ancient Palestine. A, a Jew is working alongside a, a, a Palestinian Gentile. A trumpet is blown. He literally is in the field, drops what he's doing, and goes and takes an offering to the Lord. Now, Jesus tells us when Christ comes for his church, there's going to be two in the field, two in the bed, two at the meal. One's gone. The other's left behind. Exactly what would happen. And he tells us that in terms of that, that we don't know the day or the hour. Remember, we can know Christ's second coming based on prophecies regarding Israel and Daniel's 70 weeks. But we, the church, are told to be ready at any moment. And we've been told that for 2,000 years. There's nothing that has to happen before Christ comes for his church. Things may happen, they don't have to. Jesus said that we can't know the day or the hour. This is an allusion back to the Feast of Trumpets because it's actually celebrated on two days because there was an element of uncertainty on a lunar calendar of what would be the first day of the month. The priest would look and watch the moon and they were only able to proclaim the first day of the month after the moon had shown it to be the first day of the month. So if you're going to celebrate a feast 
on the first day of the month, you've got to wait to find out that it is the first day of the month. And in those times when the new moon was proclaimed, since it falls on the very day that the feast is to be celebrated, it was pretty difficult to get the word out. And so oftentimes the Feast of Trumpets would be celebrated on the first or the second because you were waiting to see the new moon. And you wouldn't know what the first day is until the first day was gone sometimes. So the ancient Jew didn't know which day of the month we would celebrate. Could be the first, could be the second. When the new moon was proclaimed, since it falls on that day, the word might not get out to the end of the day. The Feast of Tabernacles was the only feast on the first of a month. And it was observed for two days because of the uncertainty of the hour at which it could be proclaimed. The hour at which the news of the new moon for the month of Tishri would be received. So even Jesus' words about the rapture allude back to the Feast of Trumpets. You don't know the day or the hour. The Jew didn't know which day or which hour he'd be dropping what he's doing and taking an offering up to Jerusalem. I find that interesting. Jesus' words about two in the field are the exact imagery of the Feast of Trumpets. And so we're looking for that to be fulfilled. Even more so now. And so here we have in the Old Testament, guys, we have the blessed hope of the believer. We can rest in it. We shouldn't be looking for Antichrist and the one world government. We should be looking for the blessed hope, for the Messiah. Now, these things will come. We need to know Antichrist. We need to know His Spirit because we can recognize it if we know it. But we're looking like the Thessalonians. You don't need to be worrying about this. This has got to happen first. We need to be looking for our Messiah. And that is the greatest revenge there is against tyranny. is to live free, praise Jesus, and tell others about Him. That's, that's 10,000 times more powerful than your vote. It's a mystery. What should we do with the knowledge of this, these mysteries enfolded in the Old Testament and unfolded in the New? I talk, we talked about it. We need to be good stewards of them. 1 Corinthians 4, a good steward is faithful to do His duty. The best way we can prepare for the coming of our Lord is to faithfully carry out our duties. To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love our neighbor as ourselves. To pray for one another. To rejoice with those in our midst that rejoice. Mourn with those that mourn. To share the gospel. To warn the wicked and be a watchman on the wall. That is how we prepare. We carry out our duties. Paul says we're to be ambassadors of the mystery. What does an ambassador do? He declares it. He announces the king. That's what we tried to do at the, at the corner on, at Walmart the other night. It wasn't anything fancy. That's what we tried to do, be ambassadors for Christ. We're to speak that mystery and make it manifest, Colossians 4. That means we're not only to speak it, we're to show people. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to show you in the Scriptures. When I share the gospel with Jews, a Jewish believer told me there's two things you've got to do. You've got to be bluntly honest with these people. You've got to tell them straight. Don't beat around the bush with my people. And you've got to show them right here. You've got to show them. You can't just say it. That was, that was good advice. And in 1 Timothy, we are to hold the mystery of God with a clean conscience. What does that mean? We live as if we actually believe it. We don't talk about it and get excited about it behind a pulpit. 
when we're all together and everybody agrees, but we live like we believe it. That word in Greek, to hold, is the same. It means to have and to hold, just like we say to our spouse at the wedding, to have and to hold. Are we having and holding God's Word? If we are, then we're going to live with it like it. We're not going to be running around here in fear and hiding out from a virus with a 99% survival rate. I mean, we're not given a spirit of fear. Why are we living like the world? Let's be good stewards of these mysteries. In these days, we know the future of America. We know that a house that isn't built by the Lord cannot stand. We know God has a plan for Israel. We know He's coming for His church. We know that Antichrist has to rise, but not before the restrainer is taken out of the way. So let our stewardship of those mysteries be a blessing in this land while we still can. Let it be a light. Is that not the example of the shepherds in the Christmas story? They didn't go back to the field. They went and told everybody what they had seen. Herod tried to stop it, but it wasn't just a few months later and the guy's genitals were rotten off and he died. I mean, I hate to be blunt, but that's what it was. Don't go look up pictures of Fournier's gangrene on Google. Don't do it. You'll wish you never had. Those images will never leave your mind. But that's, Herod got his in the end. So we don't need to fear these tyrants. Let's serve the Lord. So I think next week uh, is the the Sunday closest to the commemoration of the uh, horrible uh, in unjust uh, Supreme Court ruling in Roe v. Wade, and typically uh, we've used that Sunday to call our attention to this Holocaust and to pray against it. So I'm not sure exactly. We may get back into Revelation. I kind of want to break, guys. Uh, I'm, I want to listen to some preaching, and I, I know that uh, we're going to have that going forward. So we'll see what happens. I hope you've been blessed these last few weeks. It's always an honor to stand up here. I'm not an elder in this church. I'm not a leader. I don't hold an office in this church. I'm just a guy. Your church supports our mission ministry. And uh, it's always an honor to stand here and teach you. And I encourage you to do what the Bereans did. Listen to these things and then test them with the Scriptures. Don't just believe something because I said it. I'm a nobody. But test these things with the Scripture. I call them as I see them. But I don't claim to be right. I know God is right. And I know His Word is right. Let's pray. And I'll turn it over for what we're going to do with the baptism. Father, we're very grateful for this time around Your Word. I know it runs long sometimes. I know Paul preached long and, and a young man fell out the window uh, asleep and but you kept him from being harmed. <clears throat> Lord, we just ask that you would help us to be good stewards of the mystery. Thank you for the hope we have in Christ coming for his church. Lord, I pray against the evil of this nation. I pray you would arise up and do something between now and Wednesday. I pray you would keep this tyrant, this usurper, Lord, from standing in the place of leadership one who glorifies evil and wickedness. I pray you would do a mighty work that man would see as the work of God. But like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you choose not, Lord, we will not bow down to their gods. We will not. And I pray you would raise up righteous men in government who will stand in the gap. We pray for it right here in Catawba County with our mayors, our county commissioners, and with our police, Lord, that they would be friends of liberty that they would stand between tyranny and the people and that we would rally around them and support them. So I pray for them. Lord, thank you for all these brethren today. I pray we are strengthened. Lord, for the food we're going to partake of, I pray it would give us...
physical strength as your word gives us spiritual strength. We love you, Lord God. We love Jesus Christ. We're thankful for what he has done for us. We're thankful that though we were lost in our sins, Jesus Christ saved us. Lord, I pray for the young children here who have still not cried out to you to save them. I pray they would be like Peter in the waves when he fell down and took his eyes off Jesus. He said, Lord, save me. And God did. And I pray, Lord, for those. Thank you for Abel coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. And I pray this baptism would be a testimony. And I pray those here today that don't know you would cry out to you, Lord. Not a, not a religious uh, ritual, but just cry out to you and put their faith and trust in you, Lord. So that we all, when you come to take us, there'll be no one left here. It'll be an empty house. And the world can have it. And I know Ronnie doesn't care. Let him take the big screen TV. Let him take it all. I pray this house will be empty on that day. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Amen.